This episode of Safe Space Radio is brought to you by the Lerner Foundation and listeners like you. This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space Radio, a show about the subjects we would struggle with less if we could talk about them more. Today is the fifth show in our series on the Maine Wabanaki State Child Welfare Truth and Reconciliation Commission. The TRC focuses on what has happened to Wabanaki children and families since 1978 after the passage of the Indian Child Welfare Act, or ICWA. It is specifically centered on the state of Maine's child welfare practices, where Native children were removed from their homes and placed with white families, and prior to that, being forcibly placed in Christian boarding schools. Today is the second part of my interview with Sandy Whitehawk, who's one of the five commissioners of the TRC. Sandy is Chichangu Lakota, an enrolled member of the Rosebud Sioux Tribe, and a United States Navy veteran. She and her husband, George, live in St. Paul, Minnesota, where she runs the First Nations Repatriation Institute, an organization devoted to helping First Nations people impacted by foster care or adoption to return home, reconnect, and reclaim their identity. The institute also serves as a resource to enhance the knowledge and skills of practitioners who serve First Nations people. Last week, in part one, Sandy expressed the deep loss that she experienced in being taken away, not just from her family, but from her culture and the history of her people and the great sense of wholeness that she felt when she met her biological family in her mid-30s. I think that for many white people, the idea that losing one's culture can be such a devastating loss can be hard to comprehend. So I wanted to find a way to understand that in a deeper way. So that's where we rejoin the conversation. So, Sandy, I want to ask you um, about the distinction. So, you know, there's clearly a whole set of wounds that have to do with being taken away from from a family. Mm -hmm. But there's another set that I'm hearing you talk about, which really have to do with the cultural loss Mm -hmm. and the the sense of identity or belonging. And um, I think sometimes for white people, white people can so forget that they even have a culture, like they think that white this is just normal. Yeah. And um, that it can be hard to understand what the loss of a culture can mean. Are there other ways that you have found, and I know you do so much work in this area, to help white people get what the loss of culture, you know, through being adopted out to white families, what makes that so especially difficult? The, you know, there isn't, it's very challenging Sometimes the easiest way to do it is to bring back the historical loss of the first colonizers that came here. When I used to do what they called diversity training back a long time ago, yeah, um, <laughs> that phrase used to just make me crazy, diversity training, um, I learned a lot from the the... Oh, white people who were in there who kept getting mad at me for saying your ancestors to them. Those are not my ancestors. Because huh. I, I would try to paraphrase history and I'd say, I'm just going to say, you know, your ancestors, you know, created this policy at that time and our ancestors struggled. And then finally somebody one time just slammed his hand on the table and said, will you stop saying that? Those people were not my ancestors. And it was quiet for a while, and I, I thought about it, and I said, well, you know what? They may not have been specifically your relatives who were in legislator, legislation at that time that this law was passed. However, 
you have a relative somewhere who was alive at that in 1863. I was realizing it was like I had to explain to them that they just didn't pop out of the ground and become Americans. Therefore, they're American. They really did not have an understanding that they have an ancestry in Europe. Because when they came here, when their forefathers, when all of the people, when we say forefathers, when the first Europeans came here, they they left everything. And everyone learned English. You know, they, we had people here from Germany. We had people here from Ireland. We had people, just think of all, all the people who first came here, the first immigrants, and how everybody was forced into becoming, becoming white in, in our government. So... They lost a lot. You know, the Irish people have lost their songs and their culture that, that people say, well, I'm a Heinz 57, I'm a little this, I'm a little that, but they can't say where their ancestors came from, and they have ancestry in Ireland. So when you can't say who you really are, other than I was born in Minneapolis, Minnesota, my grandpa was born in, in, in um, Duluth, Minnesota, and that's all you know, you don't know who you are. You only know who you and your grandpa are. You're, a lin there, you're, you're here today from a, a long line of people. So when you point out that they actually don't know, that that's a knowledge that you can have, you know, Ancestry.com has done a great job of reminding people, hey, you, have, <laughs> you come from someplace. You come from a place other than the United States. So when you, sh when you can show them that they have a loss, then they start understanding, oh, I understand what you mean that you have a loss. But it, 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 they have nothing to compare it to. And let me just make sure I'm understanding, Sandy. So the lo you're saying the loss is not the loss that I don't know who even who my ancestors are. The loss is that when I finally do get it, and I realize that they did leave everything behind to come here. And I realize mm -hmm. that there is a loss. That they suffered some deep cultural loss of their own. And yep. I'm living here in the world without even having a, a, a deep connection to it. Yeah. And the thing, though, it seems to me is that I think that it's so easy to not even know how to mourn that because it feels so long ago, to not even recognize it as a loss. Yeah. Well, in the, if you take people through a process of really un, getting a hold of that, it, it usually hits them eventually. But what happens, once they're able to get in touch with that, they don't, that there isn't a culture, that there's, a, there's this American me kind of um, mentality and that there's a, um, a native we mentality. Um, and you can, when you can say, well, the reason we have we is because we understand that we are connected as a people and that we have, we know who our ancestors are and what happened and we can recount those. And um, when our, you know, our white counterparts uh, don't have that same understanding, it's then that they start understanding that loss. The other thing is that it's really hard to come to grips with what... Um, the generations before have done to, well, just Native Americans. We won't talk about everybody else, but just Native Americans. So you have to distance yourself emotionally from people who were willing to shoot babies. You know, those weren't my ancestors. My ancestors didn't do that. How do you know? You don't know. Um, so 
it's a very difficult, touchy, but very important and healing conversation to have. Because as much as sometimes I would like to have the corner on loss and grief, <laughs> we don't. Everyone has paid a price. And uh, when we're able to come together and share that and find that com common place of having compassion for what each has gone through, then we can move forward and um, make things better. Our brains become just enlightened with creativity when we can make that kind of connection. And that's kind of what some of the process of, you know, the truth and reconciliation hopes to, um, to be able to encourage. That's um, kind of like a, a great hope that as a result of hearing what has happened in Maine in child welfare, um, those that hear that that are in places to make decisions about policy impacting Indian families, that they will be more compassionate, not deficit-based, but asset-based, and uh, coming together and saying, well, what can we do together to um, make things better? That can only happen if conversations, those difficult conversations take place. And what I'm hearing you do is you're acknowledging the humanity of, of everyone, even the people whose ancestors may have been hurting your ancestors. Exactly. Your willingness it, to do that. In Here in Minnesota, we started doing what we call Truth Healing Reconciliation Forums. I remember the second one we did, we had just spent the afternoon hearing individual families and um, mothers and fathers and children and adoptees explaining what their experience was in either foster care or their adoption or their experience with child welfare. And when that happens, we ask those who are listening to not try to be a therapist to those that are, we ask them to just listen. And what I noticed though, in the body language of those that were listening is they were not just reflecting what they were hearing, but they were in their own place of grief. And I remember for a moment even being mad and thinking, why well, sure as hell I'm not going to be taking care of these people too. You know, all of a, if I do, it's all going to be all about them. It's always about them. And I just had this wrestling in my head. Yeah. And fortunately, I, w I have, was being mentored by a really wise uh, and balanced spiritual uh, leader and he always told me we need everybody in the circle to heal everybody and he said everybody is affected and impacted and when I would listen to him talk like that and I saw the grief and the sadness and the frustration on the social workers and mental health workers I realized that um, what was happening to us was really impacting them and that they actually wanted a better solution for us. They weren't there with answers, they, that they came to, to see how they can be part of that. Then we, on our part, have to be willing to share what we have to help that process because it's you know, we have that ability to heal. We believe in healing as a people. And so 
I didn't want to share that in the beginning. And, you know, Chris Leith, the man who brought me into this, on this path, said that we can't be selfish, should never be selfish, it's not ours to keep. That it's, that if we've been given this gift, that we have to share it. And I've seen people change. I've seen hearts change on both sides. I've, it's given me a lot of hope. So when I was asked to be part of the TRC here in Maine, it made me very excited that they had this mandate that the governor signed and that the, I knew the tribes, of course, would you know, be part of something like this because all Indian people's way of life, the part of us that's very similar, is living in, um, in a good way with our neighbors. And so I knew that even though it would be difficult, what they wanted for their families and what they wanted for um, their people um, outweighs the, the conflict that you might feel thinking about what that process will be like. So as a people, we're called, we have certain values that we live by. And um, when it comes down to making sure that uh, life is good for those yet to come, we have to put ourselves aside and be willing to do that. This, this truth and reconciliation is not somebody's genius idea. This is something that our ancestors have prayed for, a great healing for our people. If you talk to any of the healers of any tribe, they will tell you that in the time of ceremony, they always pray for that generation past and acknowledge those who've come before us, that generation present and that generation yet to come. And for that generation yet to come, you pray for the health and the happiness and well-being of that generation. Generations ago of those families who were having us removed from them prayed for us and they prayed for a healing. They prayed through um, knowing that they wouldn't even benefit from those prayers in their lifetime. And the time came and people like Esther and Denise and others they heard that calling if it's been in them for a long time and everything fell together and I believe that it happened in the East because whenever we do a ceremony every we start in us we work in a circle and we always start in the eastern direction always because that's where the Sun comes up first um, they're even called the people of the dawn or people of the first light and when I got out into Maine and I think it was the day we were being seated, that's when it kind of hit me. I was like, oh my gosh, that, of course, that's why everything would slow to a halt in Minnesota. It wasn't, it was supposed to happen in this way. Um, and it'll go around in that way and, it, and it'll end up back there, completing that circle. You watch over time, that's what's going to happen. So when I was asked to be part of that, and then when I was, you know, they interviewed a lot of people, I think, I mean, a lot, a lot of people. And the fact that they um, whittled it down to the five of us just... And the five commissioners. We, yes, the five commissioners. And when you see who they are, it's... I mean, that just doesn't happen. 
that just does not happen. We're not that smart as a people, as people, as humans, I should say. We're not that smart. We're we can be kind of clever, but this is all um, bigger than us. I hear you really giving the credit to years, really decades of prayer from your ancestors. It's exactly why we're here, and it's exactly why this commission is in place. I mean, they didn't say, oh, let's pray for our Truth and Reconciliation Commission. You know, they've been praying for healing, and healing cannot happen unless we discuss what's going on. And that's and so all the people that have been brave enough to come forward and, and share their story, um, you know, and that that's a huge... That's a huge trust because you don't have child child protection involvement unless some flag has gone up. However, most of those flags will not end up in an actual necessary removal. But what we know is that we're not going to be looked at in a compassionate way. We're not going to be looked at in our assets. We're going to be looked at in all our deficits. So then, even though these statements are anonymous, there's still a lot of fear to come forward and say what's happened. So I really um, am just proud of all of those who came forward to share their their testimonies so that um, the truth can be brought to light and that those especially who want to work to make things better will have something in front of them showing a pattern, showing, we don't even know yet because we haven't gotten there, but that's what's going to emerge is we're going to see something that we can identify and uh, work to address what we see. Sandy, I want to switch gears now, and I want to ask you about this concept of intergenerational trauma. Can you tell me what we mean by that and also how it's affected you and and your family and the people that you know? We have... um, Dr. Maria Yellowhorse Braveheart to thank for conceptualizing historical trauma and giving us that term and uh, to use to to explain what's happened to us as a people. So historical trauma is a um, it's a collective wound that spans generations, even into present generations. So. Um, we don't have to have gone through the experience of the prison camps and boarding schools to have inherited uh, in our um, DNA and in our genes the effect of that trauma on the body and on the spirit of our ancestors. And then today we are still experiencing um, discrimination, we're still experiencing at the hands of government um, decisions and uh, systems that are still uh, not bringing us to a place of um, strength and well-being. We are the ones who are um, coming up with interventions of the results of historical trauma. And just the fact that we, I just have to say, what's really important here is now we use the language trauma-informed care. There is even legislation um, wanting to use that and term trauma. That was not even used until Dr. Maria Yellowhorse Braveheart coined that term and created that concept for us. So not only have we experienced uh, generations of 
first the massacres and the intent to to exterminate us and then having the result of that trauma for generations it takes one of us to then define what we need that will help us and now the larger society is using that concept in in mental health care and yet we are the ones who experienced it and then we're the ones that that created that concept and so that alone speaks to the incredible resilience that we have as a people and it's also interesting that that fact is not pointed out the fact that this concept actually came from a native scholar it did so in in a very what some would say crass way of expressing it, which I don't think it's crass, but um, white people nearly destroyed us, left us with generations of destruction, and then Indian woman comes up with that tool, that exceptionally effective tool to define not only what happened, but also um, show that there are, are interventions. Yes, and when you say she suggested ways to resolve it, what are some of those interventions you're speaking of? Well, education and awareness. Education increases, um, I should say, education increases awareness. So the first thing is just to even educate the people about what happens to your mind and your body when you've experienced a trauma. So just explaining to the generations of those who went to boarding school, um, you know, the anger and the behaviors that you've endured taken up, the your inability to express love, your inability to make the relationships that you want to make came because how could you have developed those in an institutional, brutal, often brutal, years of um, internment in a boarding school. So it's a way to eliminate that shame because uh, no one wants to live like that and yet our people came out of those boarding schools shattered because of what had happened to them. There, there were no, um, there was, they didn't see families living together. They didn't see how siblings should interact or could interact with each other. They didn't witness how to take care of a baby because they never witnessed any of that. They were in a very sterile and often abusive uh, institution. So there was no semblance of family. How could they have... The fact that we have maintained family, the fact that we can have and understand the value of family and the uh, extended family and that we know still our clans and we still have that information is, an, is a miracle. Yeah. Because we know what happens to individuals who endure what prisoner prisoners of war endure. People don't really understand that, that these young children, um, you know, I just think of when children are teenagers and think of how the growth spurt happens and how much they have to eat and all the, um, the things that exist during development and only being able to eat certain times and being having not enough food to eat just not having any of that and could you just imagine going through that from age 6 to 17 all your formative years not having any kind of um, 
healthy environment. So increasing awareness and letting people know that that's what happened to you and that's why you are the way you are today. And so when you share that in a in a um, in a setting where it's safe and you and you can break that silence because the other thing that we know is most of the individuals that went through that never talked about it once they got out. There are individuals who are in their 60s and 70s whose families don't even know anything that they experienced while they were in boarding school because they there's a few reasons I've heard people say that they didn't tell is they didn't want their children to feel bad for them and hear what happened to them because it was so traumatic they didn't want their children to experience that plus they learned from those many years of being in the school to keep that to themselves they were isolated emotionally and when you live in an isolated state like that for so long that becomes normal to you so you don't even share that so we have our many of our elders who went through incredible abuse who never have ever spoke about it and sharing that will bring relief it, it lifts that burden of that isolation that someone else has heard what you went through um, and and acknowledges it when I heard the uh, one of them talk about being in boarding school you know how children play and run and hold hands and and try to you know they just when you watch children play that was not allowed they didn't get to play they worked when they had free time during the day as soon as they could they either helped um, there were either crops or or washing clothes or cleaning the building um, those children also maintained the property the building and um, did all of that work there was no play this was not these were not schools I don't know why they call them schools they weren't they were prisons and so <clears throat> well so this collective wound they could she calls this a collective wound that has spanned generations so it makes sense then that we would have in order to have the greatest healing that we have a collective healing so as I'm listening to you about, you know, the wisdom about how to heal from this collective trauma, I'm hearing you say, first, you know, educate people, partly because it's so deeply validating and brings awareness about what this experience has been, and that, it, and that this is a kind of a natural response to the kind of trauma that happened. And then I'm hearing a second thing, which is breaking the silence and daring to tell things that have been kept silent for mm -hmm. decades partly protectively, you know, to protect the next generation. And mm -hmm. then the third thing I'm hearing you say is, is the, the importance of collective healing, that this happened to the community and it's important mm -hmm. to heal in the community. Exactly. And coming together, sharing what happened and encouraging and nurturing each other and acknowledging that we're still here, uh, you know, brings back a sense of dignity, a sense of who you are in a community and that we really can be in the um, the best of who we are. Sandy, we're going to have to stop. I want to thank you so much for being my guest. Well, you're welcome. For people who are listening and, and want to learn more, want to understand more about the cultural loss that you're describing, or want to understand more about the experience of adoption, are there particular books or websites or resources that you would encourage people to go to? Well, they can come to my website, which is wearecominghome.com, 
There is a book of compiled adoptee stories, and that book is called Called Home. Great. And uh, Trace DeMeyer, and I can't remember the other editor, I'm sorry, that's, but if at least Called Home, you'll be able to, and Trace DeMeyer is one of the editors. There, there they could see different stories. Um, but you know, one of the things that I think is important is just that there, there is a difference in who we are. And it just, this came up in a meeting I had earlier today. There is a really good book, it's super entertaining, based on a true story, and it's called Neither Wolf Nor Dog by Kent Nurburn. That will give the reader a real understanding of the difference between culture. And once I think you kind of understand that difference is just difference, it's not bad, it's just different, um, I think that that's helpful. And it also does talk a little bit about the loss. Um, there's different parts of the book that are quite poignant, I think, in, in describing that. But that's a, it's a great entertaining way to get an education. Sandy, thank you so much. This, those are really helpful. I so appreciate your time. If you like this show and want to stay connected to these issues, you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Safe Space Radio. And you can find us on the web at safespaceradio.com. You can listen to any of our past shows, including the past four week shows about Wabanaki history, the TRC itself, the work of breaking silence in order to heal, and Sandy's own story of being out adopted by a white missionary family. While you're there, please subscribe to our email list to find out about each week's new show as soon as it's released. After this conversation with Sandy, there were so many more things I wanted to talk to her about, so I called her back, and it was really great. You can hear that conversation on next week's show. My thanks to Gabe Graben for producing the show and to Jim Russell for being our editorial advisor. Coming up next is Speak Freely. <laughs>